Matthew 5, 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, And so begins what we commonly refer to as what? The Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to spend many weeks in the the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to crack into it this morning. But as I thought about it, I thought about our midterm elections recently. All, All of our elections always remind us, do they not, that there is... No such thing as a a perfect candidate in those kind of elections, right? In in every one of them, we we do the best we can with what we've got. And that's not a slam on the candidates we had. The same would be true if you were running or if I was running, right? But I I went from there in my mind and I thought, what if there was such a thing as a, a perfect leader? A leader who is... Perfect not only in his righteousness, but also perfect in his love. A sacrificial love that that would give his very life for the good of his subjects. It would be a good question if if, if we had a a leader, let's say a, a king like that, to ask, how should I live as a follower of that king how should I live as a subject of that king and I'm here to tell you this morning we have a king just like that in Jesus Christ he's the one delivering what we call the sermon on the mount and and that's why some have called this the manifesto of the king so we need to listen closely over these next weeks because among other things we're going to see what does it look like to be a faithful follower of King Jesus? But before we even jump into the Sermon on the Mount, I want to put some bumpers up to make sure we stay on target. You know, you go bowling and you put those bumpers up and make sure you stay in the lane. I want to set up five sets of bumpers to help us as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Bumper number one, the Sermon on the Mount is not a congratulations to us on a life well lived. Rather, it is a needed correction to the way we as humans live our lives. Okay, that's bumper number one. Number two, it is not who I am naturally but it is who I must be as a subject of the king and I just take those first two bumpers and I just want to say this if you have read Matthew 5 6 and 7 what we call the Sermon on the Mount and and you thought yeah that's me I check all those boxes I live that way all the time you need to read it again You don't check all those boxes, neither do I. In fact, if we think that, I think we've missed the point. Uh, It's been said that good preaching comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. 
There are things in this message that I find unsettling when I look at what Jesus says and I look at my life. You, you probably will as well. Even before he preached it, we read in Matthew chapter 4, 17, Matthew tells us that from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, you need to change your heart and mind in such a way that it leads to a change of life. Those are words of Jesus, not only John the Baptist. And then as we get further into the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks to come, we'll read things like chapter 5, verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, that crowd there was like, what? Because in their minds, those were the most spiritual people they knew. And he's saying, your righteousness has to exceed theirs? Enter the kingdom of heaven? What's, what's he mean? Matthew 5.48, if that didn't shake them enough, if it didn't shake us enough, listen to what he says here. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, now we're listening. Right? Okay, let's go on to a third bumper. It is not who I must be in my own effort, but through the transforming grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Number four, it is not primarily what I do, but who I am in Christ lived out. It will talk about actions, but it starts inside with who I am in Christ. And finally, number five, it is not fully lived out in this life. Though certainly we should be growing, but it will be in the life to come. Okay, so we're going to come back to those throughout the next few weeks. I know that's a lot of bumpers, but I hope that will set the right tone. Today, we're just going to crack into it with Matthew 5, 1 through 12, which we know as what? The Beatitudes, absolutely. And as you maybe have glanced through those or heard them read up here, there's quite a list of promises in there. Let's read the promises for a minute. Like theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's mentioned twice. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. Your reward is great in heaven. Now, how many of you hear those promises and, and we're like, I want that. Sign me up. Like, I want all those promises. But as you probably know, each of these promises comes with a qualifier for the one who would receive them. The qualifiers all start with what word? Blessed. 
And he said that means happy, but we got to define that because when we think happy, we think of a kind of happiness that's very shallow and rises and falls on the vicissitudes of life. This is deeper than that happiness. This speaks of those who have true and lasting happiness. I call it happiness that sticks to your ribs. You know, like that Thanksgiving meal, you still had it the next morning when you woke up. You're like, oh, I'm still full. A happiness that stays with you throughout the ups and downs of life. It says over and over, happy, blessed are those who. And before we get into them, I just want to ask you a question this morning. Have you got true happiness in your life? If not, and you want it, we ought to be asking, happy are those who, who what? I need to know, because I want that true happiness. Now, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a valuable book on the Sermon on the Mount, and he spoke about happiness as he looked at this. He said, everybody in this world wants Happiness. The tricky thing about happiness, he says, is if you aim for happiness, if that is your primary goal in life, you will not get it. It is elusive in that way. Happiness, he says, is a byproduct of aiming for that which really matters. I think that's insightful. And as we go through... These Beatitudes, we're going to notice that true happiness starts with character, not, not conduct. It's helpful to remember some have said they're the, the Beatitudes, not the do-attitudes. Obviously, that's not looking into the Greek. That's just something in English to help us remember it starts inside with, with who we are, to be truly Happy is a matter of the heart. First, our hearts must be rightly positioned. Have you got true happiness? And I keep saying, have, have you got true happiness? Because we're going to use that word got as an acronym. Because true happiness comes from a heart rightly positioned toward God. That's the G in got a heart rightly positioned toward God and the things of God. The O is others, a heart rightly positioned toward the other people in our lives. And the T is trials, a heart rightly positioned in our trials. And while these Beatitudes have some overlap between those three, I've tried to break them down into those three categories. I want to start with the first one, God. I want to ask it this way. Do I have a hungry heart for God and the things of God? A heart that hungers for him this morning. We, we know all about hunger because we just came from Thanksgiving, right? I'm strategic 
when I go to my Thanksgiving feast, I will always ask the host, like this year it was my parents in Prescott Valley, hey, I know we're getting there at such and such a time, but what time are we eating? <laughs> Why? Because I want to make sure I don't eat too close to that, so I come in with a big appetite because I know there's not only going to be that juicy turkey, there's going to be those sweet potatoes, that stuffing, that pumpkin pie, pumpkin roll, pumpkin pie. I want to be able to fill up on, on the feast. And I think about that, and I think one thing we need to realize as finite human beings with a limited amount of time and a limited ability to focus, that it is possible, and it's a shame, if, if we go through this world spending so much time and focus, not, not only on things that are flat out sinful, but even things that are not right or wrong in and of themselves, but to fill up on those things in such a way that we have no appetite left for the God which truly satisfies. And, and the things of God, do I have a hungry heart for God? And the things of God, I see this in some of these. Listen, verse 3, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, the poor in spirit. It's those who know they don't measure up on their own. If you're here this morning thinking, man, I know where I've been. I, I, I know where I, what I've thought. I know what I've said. I know what I've done to people. I know I don't measure up to God's righteousness on my own. You're poor in spirit. And that is a good place to be. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because what? When you know you're not righteous on your own, you hunger for the righteousness that comes only in Jesus Christ. It's tied to verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I don't believe this is just any kind of mourning, especially because it just came off of verse 3. I believe it's those who have a broken heart over their sin. Have you been there? Are you there today? I said this to my spouse. I, I did this to my friend. I, I, I made this choice. I'm brokenhearted over it. That's a good place to be, for they shall be comforted. Listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah 57, 15. The words of God. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It, it's good to be broken over our sin, to feel lowly over our sin. Those are the kind of people God works with in his mercy and his reviving grace. The hunger comes straight out in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What is this? It's like we said earlier, those who know we need the righteousness of God because ours is like filthy rags. And we position ourselves 
through faith in Jesus to receive his righteousness. I think about positioning ourselves and I think about baby birds. Have you ever seen a nest of baby birds when they're hungry? They know how to position themselves for a meal better than anybody I know. You ever seen their beaks? They open like this. They're wider than their whole body. All you see is a bunch of beaks. Why? Because they know mom's got a gut full of worms. Now, that doesn't sound good to us, but that's their life, right? They need that. They position themselves for what mom's bringing to the nest. In fact, God used that as an example of spiritual hunger for him. Psalm 8110, he, he said to Israel, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I believe that's speaking not only of physical provision for them, but spiritual provision in him. Think about Isaiah 55 in light of a hunger for God. I, I love these words. It says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What a picture of grace. Right? Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why are you looking for it in things of this world? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Now I think about that kind of hunger in our relationship with God. And I think about what David said in Psalm 34. What did he say? He said, taste and see that the, the Lord is good. H have you tasted the goodness of God by coming to him through faith in Jesus? And even if you have, I want to encourage you with something. God's filled that initial hunger, but we have an infinite God. So I think about that and... You have to forgive me for a moment. I think of a, a commercial for a, a popular beverage. It said, stay thirsty, my friends. Right? I want to tell all of us who are believers in here, I want to encourage us, stay hungry, my friends. Because we have an infinite God. While He fills us when we go to Him, He's a feast that we continue to come to. Are you hungry for God? We see this played out in one more. Blessed are the, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, of course, in one sense, that speaks of that ultimate moment in eternity when, when we see God in heaven, right? Face to face. But what about walking with him now by the eyes of faith? Do you, do you have that kind of intimate fellowship with God? Of course, it starts when we come to the cross. How do we become pure in heart? Because they're the ones who see God. Think about Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. We are washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. 
But even as we walk along, believers, how many of you know it's possible as a child of God in this world to walk along and pick up the muck and the sinful mire of this world in our lives, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions? And that blocks our fellowship with our Father. It doesn't take away that relationship, but it blocks that fellowship. And I think about that, and I think about how many times we make this sinful choice, followed up with this sinful choice, followed up with this sinful choice, and then we want to be mad at God because he feels so far away. Right? What does Proverbs 19.3 say? A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. But guess what? If we rage against the Lord in that moment, that ain't going to fix that gap. What needs to happen? We need to confess the sin that we're cherishing and repent if we want that fellowship back, right? Think about the hope in 1 John 1. First, it starts with a challenge, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If I don't feel that close fellowship with God, I need to ask myself, am I living in sin? Because that's one very possible answer. It, it could be just a dark night of the soul. I'm walking with God, but he feels far away. That happens. But don't discount the other possibility. And if I find that I am, go to verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And once again, that close fellowship is restored. Do I have a hungry heart for God this morning and the things of God? And I want to talk about others. This is where it gets more tricky because we're dealing with other people, right? It's where it always gets more tricky. Do I have a, a humble heart toward other people? Let me share a couple of these. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meek is a word that we don't think highly of in human culture throughout time. The Greeks despised it as weakness. And I, I dare say there are probably many of us that would think the same. Like, I'll bet you 50 bucks. Not one of you ever showed up. I'm just kidding because I'm not a betting man. So don't send me letters. But none of you ever showed up to a job resume with meek on there. I am a meek person. Did anybody ever do that? No, I don't see any hands. Why? Because a lot of times we hear that word and we think of meekness as weakness. Right? But I want to tell you something. Jesus described himself as a related word, gentle and lowly in spirit. Moses, man who led Israel out of Egypt for God, was described as the meekest man on the face of the earth. You know what meekness is? It's not weakness. It's, it's very much like gentleness, which is strength under control. Strength under control. It's, it's like that muscular wild stallion that, that's been brought into the pen and made useful. 
right? He's still as powerful as ever, but his strength under control. You say, how do I show meekness? Well, let me start with a real practical realm of discipleship. How do I show meekness on Highway 89A? <laughs> how about this? Like, not flipping the bird to the guy that just cut you off. Even though you feel you want to. Really bad. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to keep that strength under control right now. What about... And I relate to this one more because I'm not a bird flipper, but this second one, I've been on the wrong side of this one. Traffic's merging into one lane, and you've been waiting there 10 minutes in, in the lane you're supposed to be in. And you've been watching for the last four minutes as somebody who knew that sign was back there like two miles. He's been just staying in that, that left lane as long as he can, cutting by about 20 people. So he can get wherever he's going faster. And he's right in front of you. And there's a gap there. What, what does the, the flesh say? <laughs> right? And I've done that. To be meek in that moment is to say, you know what? Maybe that guy's in a hurry. I'm going to go ahead and let him, let him have that spot. Now take those examples from the highway into your home into your workplace, wherever, and you can get an idea of what strength under control might look like. Let me give you one more practical one. If you're a meek person, you're willing to listen to constructive criticism from other people who care about you and love you. Why? Because you know a couple things about who you are. On the one hand, you think about how God created Adam and, and you know you're made from, from dirt, okay? You think about your origins, right? Spiritually, you know your own sinfulness if you have a sensitive heart, right? So I like the way one guy put it. Hey, whatever people say about me, the truth is probably worse. That's the one side of things you know. But you also know another side as a follower of Jesus Christ. You know you are infinitely valuable because God created you in his image. And he sent his son to die for you. So I don't need to rise and fall on the praise and criticism of other people because I find it in him. I don't need to rise and fall in being first on the highway because I have it in him. What does it say about the meek? Shall inherit the earth. Now, of course, if you think about eschatology, you think about that millennial kingdom when Jesus sets up his kingdom on the throne of David and we reign with him that thousand years. But more than that, some have suggested that there's an application even today. Listen to what Paul said as he described the sufferings of faithfully following Jesus in this world. 2 Corinthians 6.10, he said, we're, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, 
listen to this, and yet possessing everything. What is he talking about there? I think he's talking about the contentment of those who know their heavenly father is the king of the universe. The whole universe that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and that's my father. If we really grab onto that, that brings us contentment wherever we find ourselves. More about our relationship with others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, what is mercy? It's not always having that raging lust to give people exactly what they deserve when they wrong us. <laughs> right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we learn more about God, that he goes beyond mercy in the lives of us sinners to a, a generous grace to us all. Just looking ahead, Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And this week I've been thinking about just how thoughtful he is as he shows us his grace and mercy. thought about that because I picked my buddy up at the Kingman prison on Monday and he's settling back into the area making a go of it. As we drove back down, one of the things he told me that he was most sad about when he went away 19 months ago, he had to give up his dog. He had this great dog named Hannah, super nice, and he had to give her away to his friend. And we're driving home, and he said, I tried to get a hold of my friend, but he's moved, and nobody knows where he's at, so I don't know if I'm ever going to get to see Hannah again. But then as he's telling me this, he starts tearing up and getting all emotional. He said, the other day I was at... McDonald's on Miller Valley Road, and I, there's a little trail down there by the creek, and I want to go hiking. I'm hiking, and I looked up, and guess who came walking by? Hannah and my friend. He said, I'm so thankful, so thankful to God that he heard that little desire on my heart and, and answered it. Now, we think of a, a father who's merciful and gracious to us, and we love that. And, and what Jesus is, is saying is, hey, pass some of that on to the people in your life, to your spouse, to your children, to your co-workers, to your neighbors. If you love it, pass it on. He goes on, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is one we need in today's world. Let me ask you a question. This is uncomfortable for me. Maybe it's uncomfortable for you too. If, if somebody were to go up randomly to your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, etc., and say, is so-and-so a peacemaker? What, what would they say? Is that you? Is that me? Or are we the ones that are always on edge, just always ready to, to, to jump into a fight, whether it's verbal or physical. And I always have to be right. 
no matter what it does to the people around me. Am I a peacemaker? Why? For they shall be called sons of God. Why are peacemakers called sons of God? Because he is the, the ultimate peacemaker. Think of who we were before Christ. We were at enmity with God. He sent his son to take your sin and mine to the cross. And listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He is the ultimate peacemaker. So when we follow in his footsteps, we're called sons and daughters of God. Does that mean we, we don't speak truth? Absolutely not. Does that mean we do not believe in holiness? Absolutely not. If God is the ultimate peacemaker, he's also the ultimate example of holiness and inspired truth. It says Jesus came full of grace and truth. Am I a peacemaker? I think about these first two, hungry for God and humble toward other people. I think about an Old Testament king you may have heard of named Uzziah. I was reading about him in my quiet time this week, and I want to share just briefly how he swung the whole pendulum back and forth on these two. He started out really good. Second Chronicles 26, you can read the whole chapter sometime. But I want you to listen to what it says early on in his kingship. Second Chronicles 26.5 says, He sought God during the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. So a couple things here. We see that he sought the Lord twice. We, we hear they listened to Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. So he lived with this healthy awe of the Almighty God, who he lived in the presence of. In fact, that word fear, when it says Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, I have a footnote in my Bible says, in the vision of God. I think it's that idea that he knew God was his audience of one and that everything he did was first and foremost in the presence of that God. And God blessed that. God gave him success. And, and a lot of that was physical in the kingdom, but I imagine he had a great joy during that season of his life as well. Because that joy comes when we seek the Lord. I want you to listen what 2 Chronicles 26 15 says, says he was greatly helped until he became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. And we see that too often in the lives of human beings, do we not? We seek God, he helps us, we get there, we forget him, we get proud. Look what I did. And it got so bad, some of you remember the climax of the story. Near the end of his reign, this man who started off so well, he went into the temple. He's the king, right? He wants to offer incense in the temple. According to the law of God, that's a job only for the priests. But not only did he 
go in there with a heart to violate the law of God. But there were priests in there that tried to stop him, say, hey, no, 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 this is not right. God has said this is only for the priests. You are a king. And instead of listening to those priests, you know what it says? He raged against those priests. It says leprosy broke out on Uzziah's forehead. Verse 21 says, King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. And I think about the great tragedy of that man's life. He started out hungry for God, but ended up full of self. When he started out, he was humble enough as the king to listen to Zechariah's godly counsel and receive it. But in the end, he's filled with pride and rage to where he would not listen to a room full of priests in God's temple itself. It's worth asking, where am I on those pendulums today? Am I hungry for God and the things of God? Am I humble toward the other people in my life? God others, the T is trials. The last one, do I have a hopeful heart in the trials that I experience for Jesus? Get this from verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You say, why? Why, Jesus? Why am I blessed when that happens? Well, first he's going to encourage us to look forward in those moments. Verse 12, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is coming. If you, if you take it from me in this world, your reward is great, Jesus says. Hang on. Look forward, but not only look forward, look back. He says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's encouraging to look back at Jeremiah and Isaiah and the other prophets who faithfully spoke for God and were persecuted. And he's saying, take heart. You're in good company. Hold on. Hold on. And we know this side of the cross, it wasn't just the prophets, it was Jesus himself that experienced this. Think about this kind of hopeful heart in trials. I think about a young lady named Min Maya. As a teenager in Nepal, Buddhism was prominent where she lived. In fact, her mother was a Buddhist lama. It's in the family. She, her mother's a higher up. And, and people would come to her mom to have Buddhist chants and prayers said over them when they were sick and other things like that. Min Maya got sick. And her mother prayed over her. She did not get better. Her sister, who had come across a Bible for some Christians that were giving out school supplies, invited some Christians 
to pray for her sister. And then Maya was healed in answer to those prayers. She once again got sick and, and her mom said, I'm sending a Buddhist priest to pray for you. And when the Buddhist priest prayed over her, her health got worse. And finally, Min Maya went for a meeting with a Christian pastor and his wife. They, they prayed with her once more. And she says of that meeting, that was the right moment for me to know that I must follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But my mom disagreed. She went back home, and her and her sister had the boldness to go to her mother, a, a Buddhist lama, and say, we feel the need to go to this Christian church because I was healed in response to their prayers. And can you imagine this from your own mother? She, she picked up a large wooden board and began swinging it at the, at the two girls, got her sister. Later on, her brother joined her mother's side and began to beat Min Maya where she had to leave her own home. Her and her sister moved into a place of their own, began a tailoring business. I want you to listen to what she took from the Gospel of Matthew. Here's a quote. She said, The major thing was that Jesus came into this world for our sins, and he experienced pain like we experienced. Jesus also suffered. For us, that is really special for me. And then she talked about that fellowship with the Savior who had suffered before her. She talked about her time in prayer and reading the Bible and listening to him. And here's another quote. She said, worship is the best for me. It's like the heart-to-heart -heart time with the Lord. You see, she looked back and she realized she's in the best company the fellowship of sharing his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. Do we have that kind of hope in the trials that we experience for Jesus? And if we look at our lives and say, I don't have many trials for Jesus, would that kind of hope in her story and the stories of others give us a boldness to say, hey, maybe it's time for me to step out a little more and be willing to because I do have that hope. As we wrap up, I just want to ask us a couple questions. I want to go back to the happiness question. Am I a genuinely happy person in the truest biblical sense of the word? Are you? Do I have a hungry heart for God and the things of God? Do I have a humble heart toward people? Do I have a hopeful heart in trials? And I'm telling you, if you're here and you're answering those no, as I hinted at at the beginning, the answer is not to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and go out of here and say, I'm going to try my darndest in my own power to do this. It's not. The answer is what the king himself said in John chapter 3 to one of the religious leaders, Nicodemus. 
Listen to what he told him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You say, how can I be born again? You all know it. Verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Lord, I thank you for the privilege we have of diving into the words of King Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And Lord, I thank you that you lay out the path to true and meaningful happiness. Lord, and we just confess right now our inability to walk that path on our own. We confess with hungry hearts for you and your righteousness that we need Jesus in our lives. May we be people that stay hungry for you and keep pressing into you. We confess the times in our life when humility toward other people would be the last way we would be described. Help us in the power of the risen Savior and the Holy Spirit within to walk the footsteps of Jesus. No one's ever been so bold. No one's ever been so faithful for you. And yet he could say he was gentle and lowly in spirit. God, we need your help. Lord, as we think about hope and trials, we pray for those around the world who are feeling that heat in a far greater sense than we are today, that that hope would continue to rise up in Min Maya, her sister and others, and that it would give us a willingness if we've been holding back because we don't want any of that, that we would be faithful to to speak your name, to obey you, no matter what it costs us in this world. Because we're looking forward to that reward in heaven. And we're looking back to the prophets before and to you yourself, Jesus. We want to walk with you. Help us. Thank you for this manifesto of the King, a perfectly righteous, perfectly gracious, perfectly loving King. May we surrender to you. May even our offerings be from grateful hearts that worship the King. In Jesus' name, amen.